Hello and welcome to the Leading Through Uncertainty podcast series. I'm your host, Jude Jennison from Leaders by Nature. And in this podcast, I interview leaders from different organisations and industries to find out more about the challenges they face in leading through uncertainty and how they overcome them. This week, I'm interviewing Jane Austen, who is the head of HR for WAVE, a startup business that is a joint venture between Northumbrian Water Group and Anglian Water. Jane has experienced huge uncertainty in the last eight months, which she's about to explain. She shares her passion for engaging people emotionally, the importance of communication, and how to do it when you legally can't. And she has a wealth of ideas for other leaders to consider, both in HR and in the business. Welcome, Jane, to the Leading Through Uncertainty podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself to the benefit of the listeners and explain what it is that you do? Yes, thanks, Jude. So I'm the uh, Director of HR for WAVE, and WAVE is a recently formed joint venture because in April 2017, the water industry deregulated and the main water companies that people would be aware of um, tended to set up their own retail businesses. Northumbrian Water set up NWGB, and I was part of that team that set that, that new company up. Anglian Water set up a retail business uh, called AWBN, and those two companies have um, merged in September to form the new uh, retail utility company called Wave. And in terms of my job role, um, I'm responsible for strategic and operational HR. Um, it's a small company, it's got 300 employees now, um, so we haven't really got the luxury of, of separating out um, the director role of being just strategy, um, which I'm quite pleased about because I actually like having my foot in both camps. So that obviously covers you know, all elements of org design, leadership and culture, um, sort of core business training, health and well-being, engagement and um, and reward and recognition. And also in in my team, um, we cover we cover learning and development, um, health and safety, and internal comms. Okay, great. So in the last in the last year, really, you've gone through huge amounts of uncertainty with the deregulation, the new the new company, and then the the merger with another company and the joint venture. So tell tell us what your experiences are of leading through uncertainty in that in that period. Uh, yeah, I I just instantly picture a roller coaster. Really, um, <laughs> yeah. I, having said that, I'm someone who likes change and isn't frightened by change. So perhaps I was in a kind of luxurious position because for me it was all opportunity. I mean, I I have honestly had the best eighteen months of my career. Um, but it hasn't been that way for other people necessarily. Yeah. And you know, when when I look at the two companies, um, on on one side there were ten people that cheated across from the original um, wholesale water company. On the other side of the joint venture, there were sixty three people that cheated across. So instantly, when you have people who are coming from an older organisation into a new startup, that that's a hugely uncertain time for them yeah and and you, you know you watch you, you watch fear you watch all of the kind of human emotions that are that, that perhaps unnerve people but they're actually very natural mm. um you know if you if you think if you've ever i'm sure you have but you know if you look at the, the sort of academic things about 
the sort of change curve and, and that kind of thing, you, you can really watch people um, take that journey. You know, and it, and it ranges from quite a senior um, person in the business that, that came across that was really worried about moving building. And I hadn't even... Yeah, I hadn't even sort of thought about that because I was working on a project to find a new building. Um, and to me, it was just a really exciting time. And sometimes you just have to stop and draw breath and, and watch what's playing out in front of you. And that person, you know, that was a, a really big thing. She'd worked in the same team, in the same building, same journey, um, for, you know, 20 odd years. And then suddenly, all of those things that were familiar were just thrown up in the air in the most physical way, beginning with a building and then entering, you know, a new startup company then watching that company go live and enter a market that was unknown because it hadn't, you know, that there hadn't been um, competition in, in that sort of water sector before. And then just as you kind of stabilize out of that, we then embarked on a joint venture. So, People have undergone an absolutely enormous and rapidly changing um, set of work work environments in the last sort of eighteen months. Um, you know, it's had its highs and it's had its lows, but it's it's certainly been uh, a big amount of change. Yeah. Yeah, and how do you? I mean, well, I'm hearing that you love change and you embrace it and you see it as opportunity, and I think it's very it's very easy as a leader who who does thrive on uncertainty, get to get all yee-haw, gung-ho, look at this, it's opportunity, and and to not really understand the challenges that other people are facing. And yet I'm hearing that, that you have, and, you know, and people might argue it's because you're in HR, but I know that it's not, um, that, it, that it's more than that. But what I'm hearing is that whilst you have seen it as an opportunity, you've also recognised that for other people it's much, much more challenging. How do you um, support them through that process and not get derailed by where you're going? Yeah, I've, I mean, I've had some big challenges in, in life and and I'm very aware looking back that each one of those has actually sort of built up my ability to deal with change. Um I've done a lot of, you know, of reading and looking into sort of personal resilience. And as you say, to a certain extent, I'm quite, I'm quite lucky that I see change as, as an opportunity. But I have three children. I mean, they're, you know, well, with stepchildren, I have four. Um, and they range from sort of 15 to 24. And they're a real mix. Um, and one in particular, from a very small child, really struggled with change. Mm. And, and I think she taught me a lot because... Something would, you know, go to change in life, and I think, oh, yeah, that's great, that's exciting. And then I watch this this sort of little child, and then later a, a sort of teenager, and uh, and now someone who's um, who's at university age, and she would look at the same thing and and just give a completely different look, and it was a fear, and you know, why is this happening? What do I do? All my sort of routine is gone, and and that taught me a lot, and it's I guess it's enabled me to see things from other people's. Um, worlds and and I've made a really big effort um, to make sure that I look out for those for those people and and as you all know you know you have a range in between from somebody who's very unnerved by change to someone like me that, that, that almost relishes it and then you have every combination in between um, 
And I think, for me, it's a, it's a number of things, you know, from the way that, that we've set out terms and conditions um, through to the kind of well-being um, program that, that we've put in place. We've done a lot on... Um, We've done a lot in the well-being space, really, uh, mm-hmm. and looking at supporting people. Um, I was quite passionate about having an internal comms presence, um, which in a, is quite an argument in a startup. Yes, yeah. you know that that can be seen as quite a luxury. My background is internal comms and HR, um, but that has been really important because the thing that carries people through change. Is communication completely? Yeah, and it's often overlooked, isn't it? <laughs> it's often overlooked, or it's seen as a luxury. Mm. And actually, to me, it isn't a luxury. It's it's an absolute necessity. And you know, I'm I'm not daft. I'm I'm very aware that you can never please everybody when when you communicate. You can never do enough, or you can never do it quite right. Mm. And I accept that because how you take communications. Is a, is a personal reaction. But what you can do is set out as an organisation to try and deliver good internal communications so that you talk people through that change, so that you explain where you can, um, why a change is happening. And, and then there's the harder bit of, you know, there's information that sometimes you can't communicate. You know, I've watched people enter, enter a gap. There, there was a time when... The business went live um, in April last year, and then we were into the sort of settling down period. And then pretty quickly, around the sort of May-June time, the leadership team were heavily involved in due diligence. And, you know, from, from a legal point of view, we weren't actually allowed to talk about that. Yeah. And yet people really close to us could see an increase in volumes, perhaps in, you know, in, in tension, um, you know, there were there were meetings behind closed doors. And it, that's sort of something very hard as a lead, leader, because you, you get to this level and you realise it can be quite a lonely place. Mm. Um, but as long as you keep that in mind and fill that gap with information when you can legally give it, then you're going to help people to go through change because people want to be engaged um, and I you know I really believe that the, the role of HR it's I think it's changed I think the role of, of HR has changed over the years but for me it is about creating a positive employee experience and, and you know all the research shows that it in itself boosts productivity it boosts reputation of the, of the organization and then HR is also there to protect the business from risk. Mm. And and yes, you know, at a at a very commercial level, that's you know, ensuring that we we don't get taken to tribunal. You know, we, we meet all our regulatory um, challenges, etc. But it it is also about reputation and how people are feeling. And people management is absolutely at the heart of that. And you know, I know that. that in the podcast you've given before, you've talked about traditional management styles, the sort of the old command and control. And, you know, it leaves people sort of emotionally disconnected mm. in in the workplace. And what's been interesting for me on this sort of journey is I've gone from 
large sort of corporate organisations. And then I stepped out and helped set up a business that where there were six of us, I think, on a project team. And then before you knew it, there was 100. And now we've, we've merged and there's 300. And, you know, not surprisingly, there have been all kinds and there are all kinds of different management styles in a population of even that size. And that has brought me personal challenges because I'm very passionate about treating people the right way, you know, A, because that's the way I am, but also it pays dividends in a company. Um, you know, that, that, that's been known for, for however many years, and yet you can see behaviours play out in front of you, particularly in times of big uncertainty. Yeah, and I think that's that. That's the challenge, isn't it? Is is in uncertainty when you are operating, when people are operating through a place of, of fear and, and are unsure about their future, it it threatens their safety in effect. And I think that that creates those stress behaviours. Um, and I think you know we start to see behaviours that that aren't usual for people that that get played out and. Um, and I'm sure you've had more than your fair fair experience of those. I'd like to just take you back because you you mentioned. I mean, I think communication is is a really fascinating one because, um, you know, we we all like to think that we communicate, and yet it's it's so challenging. And particularly, you know, you talked about when we can't legally communicate and when we can. Um, and I think sometimes people hide behind the, well, we can't, and then don't communicate anything. And it's looking at, at how we find that, that balance. And it sounds as though you've done, you've done a great job with that. What I'd like to take you back to is, is what you talked about with having learned from, um, from your children and how they cope with uncertainty as well. Because I think you mentioned a really key thing there, which is our ability to learn from our life experiences from every situation we've ever been in. Can you can you tell me more about um, why why you're so focused on on that? Because not everybody would would have made the jump between. Well, here's here's my how one of my daughters struggles with uncertainty, and therefore here's here's what I can learn from that and apply in the workplace. Not everybody would make that leap. So can you just talk a bit more about that? Yeah, and, and, you know, each of us have a unique background. You know, I did sociology and psychology um, as my degree. Um, I've also um, qualified in emotional intelligence. Um, so I, I guess I am someone who naturally likes to, to continue to learn as yeah. I go through life anyway. Uh, and and, I, and it's just a really been a, a nice kind of journey for me because... You know, you, you do you have you do psychology, um, and you do certainly get an insight into that. Yes, I didn't go on and, and become you know, a, a clinical psychologist, but I've never lost that interest. Um, you then have experiences with with children and, and your own life, uh, and I I've just kept up that kind of learning in the workplace and and in the job I'm doing. I really am in a position where that learning can help others mm. you know in, in something like emotional intelligence you, you talked about you know in in times of fear um people can behave quite differently and you know emotional intelligence it's becoming more important for it's often the thing 
that, that sets companies apart. Mm. Um, because a lot of business challenges are emotional in nature. Of course. And so, you know, leaders, well, my, my belief really is that leaders need to be more emotionally intelligent. And it doesn't matter which area of life, you know, whether whether it's, it's sort of a, a partnership, whether it's with, with children, parents, work colleagues, there's nothing more important in the world than relationships. It, it is, you know, it's how the world goes by. And, and what people need to feel is psychological safety. Mm. And when they feel that at home, when they feel that in the workforce, then they have a confidence that if they share new ideas or they share their fears, you know, they, if they're worried about, here's a joint venture, will it mean an office is closing down? If you're working in an environment of psychological sort of safety, where you know you can ask that question, and even if there, there isn't an answer yet, the fact is somebody will respect you for answering that and it won't work against you, then, then you're in a better starting position to to enter a period of change yeah and um, and it's interesting because we you know we talk a lot and um, um, about physical safety and particularly in manufacturing and construction environments um, and more and more we're starting to talk about mental health and and well-being um but psychological well-being is not something that um and psychological safety is not something that gets talked a lot about in in business so how do and, and obviously you've got a psychology degree so you've got a, a, a bias and an understanding of the value of that what would your advice be to other leaders in other organizations that perhaps haven't considered that before uh, I think it's a sort of it's a competitive advantage tool in one sense if you know if you want to look at it from from the sort of harsh commercial reality but I just think, you know, look at yourself and look at what you need. Um, we can all be different, but I'm pretty sure that we all would say we do need to feel safe in in wherever we operate. Mm. And I know I, I've, I've worked in some large organisations. I've worked in, in the car industry um, where, where there were big budgets to look at, at this kind of thing. I mean, when I was there, it was sort of 15 years ago. And so emotional intelligence as a subject probably hadn't really hit then but there was always an investment in understanding relationships behavior the best ways of managing but you don't need a big budget for it mm. um you know i really don't have um a very big budget because we're a startup company and mm. yeah don't get me wrong we've we've set the budgets in the way they need to be but it doesn't take big money to do this. Mm. It might just take a refocus of your people management program. Um, something like, you know, you, you can train one person in emotional intelligence or, you know, I'm, I'm also qualified in um, MBTI, the sort of Myers-Briggs tool, and insights. And and I've just been, um, so I've exposed our the rest of my colleagues, our leadership team, to uh, to insights and I've then sort of started to roll that out and that's all based around you know the work of Carl Jung and um, and showing people that we all perceive the world including the world of work in different ways and when you understand your sort of default position of how you view anything that comes at you you can then understand how people differ from you mm. and then the conversations can begin and 
and you know, golly, don't, don't get me wrong, we're not a long way down that line. I, I've rolled that out at sort of just at top level. But you were talking about mental health awareness, and and, and my team are working. Um, we're working currently on a whole mental health um, program, and we're looking at getting getting a sort of charter in place that the employees create. We've already had a sort of speaker in that's talked about sort of breaking down the stigma of mental health, mm-hmm. so that you know we can have conversations. We've had a really strong response from employees um, of people saying they've never worked in a culture where it's really okay to be standing in the kitchen talking to somebody you know that you work for or somebody that works for you or just a colleague about mental health challenges you've had and there's no judging, there's no perception and that changes the culture of an yeah. organisation. Yeah. You don't never underestimate what just just giving people permission to say and explore it, it makes a difference to how people then cope with any business and organisational change. Yeah, I was just wondering, does that help people um, develop a, a culture of openness and transparency in other areas? I think it's the building block of trust. Yeah. And I think you need, you know, again, in all walks of life, you want to be operating in a position of trust. Um have we got there yet? I'd say no. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we've begun that journey. I think trust takes time. And and for some people, you need, you need to establish that over time. You know, people might need to see their managers deliver promises um, or whatever it is that, that people need. That comes over time. And, and I think... We've started on that, but but I still see people, particularly in in this area of people management, I still see people default into their comfort zones when it gets really hard. Mm. And and interestingly, I'm I've, I'm just reading a book by Charles Charles Duhigg, which is all about habits um, and, and how habits are created. And reading that, it. it so insightful into how you can improve the preparation of people managers in a business because you know it this is all done from sort of behavioral science but you know he talks about when you are going through uncertainty the brain sort of looks for a cue which is a, a kind of trigger that gets your brain to just go into automatic mode and just follow a pattern it's followed before mm-hmm. and then once it follows that pattern of routine it will follow it through until there's some kind of reward. Now, that can be, you know, a physical reward of, of chocolate or the reward can be a desired outcome that, that you wanted to have in that situation. And then if that reward happens, the brain sort of figures out, well, if that cue happens again, I'll go through that, that same kind of routine because that reward loop is sort of worth remembering in the future. And the more times that cycle happens then the more automatic it becomes and a habit is formed. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I watch in sort of management or leadership because what may once have been a necessary outcome, you know, there are times in the workplace when you need to give an instruction to someone, you need to tell because it's safety critical. But what can happen is that then your brain runs through that loop the next time and the next time. And what happens is you end up 
routinely telling people what to do and not being compassionate and not connecting with them and actually not listening. And if that just repeats and repeats, before you know it, you have a culture that isn't about trust. But the interesting thing for me, and I guess it comes kind of comes back to the psychology bit, is that, you, you know, you can see why the sort of command and control behaviours can just repeat. But you can change habits and people managers can change the ways of behaving because what happens is once a habit is there, the brain just follows that pattern automatically. And it becomes a, an unconscious yeah, reaction, doesn't that's it? exactly yeah. it. And, but you can change. You'd have to consciously set out to change that behaviour. Mm. And that's really where I want to get the organisation to. And, and what I'm putting in place is a people manager programme that will be, yeah, there'll be an overview and it, it will talk about emotional intelligence and, and habits and all of this kind of stuff and, and why trust is important. Um, but it's about giving people the skills and the confidence to do this. Yeah, and um, I think that starts with self-awareness as well, doesn't it? Is it yeah. until people are aware of what their habits are that they're demonstrating, nothing will change. Yeah. Mm. And that's hard for people because, mm. you know, what people default to in times of uncertainty is often defensive engagement because you feel threatened. And, and it's giving people the confidence that they can undo behaviours and they can behave in a certain way and nothing's going to happen to them. You know, they're not going to be judged on that. Far from it, because actually when you break down some of those automatic leadership behaviours that have become, you know, destructive, actually if you change them, only good can happen. But it's recognising that that doesn't happen overnight. It's hard for people to do. And I think it's even harder the more senior you get in an organisation. Well, I guess those patterns become more ingrained, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And and you almost don't notice you've been doing them for a lot of years. And mm. sometimes the wake-up call for people is, you know, the employee engagement survey. Um, maybe it's getting a low score in that. Maybe it's even a, a complaint. You know, I'm, I'm looking at perhaps sort of extreme um, wake-up calls for people. Mm -hmm. But then if you take the situation we're in, I've had to challenge some of those behaviours because if we don't work on those, actually a start-up business won't work. Mm. People come to a start-up business wanting things afresh and, and new. You know, a lot of people have, have, have joined this organisation from bigger kind of corporate backgrounds because they want to, they, they want to be recognised. They want to feel part of something. They want to influence change. And one of the things that I set out to do um, when we started the business up was I spoke to, to the sort of, you know, the people that were there originally. And we shared, not in a sort of formal workshop, you know, this was just office conversations, but, but we shared experiences of what we'd loved in organisations and what we'd hated. And mm. we talked about policies that we'd loved and we'd hated. And, and our chief exec, Lucy Darch, is, she's on that same wavelength. And, and her and I just had a conversation one day. We, we both lost a parent um, and we talked about our experience of bereavement leave. Mm -hmm. and, you know, even in the best corporate organisations, our experience was at most 
you got five days paid bereavement leave. Mm. And with the best one in the world, you often haven't even had the funeral yeah. in that time. Yeah. And one of the first policies that we wrote was a bereavement leave policy, which is a bizarre place to start, I know, <laughs> but, but it mattered to us. And, and we set out that there would be two weeks paid bereavement leave if you lose you know, someone that's, that's in a sort of close, close circle. And we, you know, we hoped that we wouldn't even discover that, but we have. We've had it happen a few times. And after two weeks, we have had people back at work, almost kind of forever grateful of the support and the freedom they were given to just grieve. Mm. And it's, you know, this, I guess what I've learned, the sort of the academic bits that I still love reading, you can do so much with them. You, you know, you can influence your whole people strategy, the way you treat employees, the policies you write, the culture you create, the rewards package, you know, that, that you develop. They can all be influenced by this learning. And, and so if there are companies out there that sort of think, you know, I'm a small startup and I haven't got big budgets in to have big speakers, A, I'd be happy to talk to people, but, but also you don't need it. You can just read a book, you know, you can read an emotional intelligence book and what you can do with that learning can go right across the organisation. And, and I also say give yourself permission to just do it one step at a time. Mm. Yeah, because, you, know, you know, even something as, as simple as bereavement leave, um, when you've got people who, who are coming back and saying we're extremely grateful, they're going to come back more engaged than if they felt that they weren't supported and cared for and yeah. and those emotions if they're not allowed to and obviously you know bereavement takes longer than two weeks as you know as, yeah. as we all know um but at least that's a starting point that helps people navigate the the early stages of it and um you know that it, I guess it would be easy as a startup to say, well, you're losing a key employee for two weeks and you can't afford to do that. But you're losing that employee if they're back at work. And and if they're back at work and not in the in the right state to be back at work, then I guess that that takes longer for them to recover. So you're losing their skills for longer. So, you know, what, what seems like a short-term um, you know, loss as a, as a business is actually a long-term gain for everybody. Yeah, and you know, in previous organisations where I've worked, without fail, in every bereavement case I dealt with, people went off sick at the end of the five days. Mm. So you'd lost them anyway. Yeah. And then, you know, then you get into into cycles of if somebody is off sick and not getting the support, then, you know, I think the, the sort of the facts from the occupational health specialist is that, you know, once you've been off six weeks, there's a kind of institutionalisation that happens in your own brain, mm. and then the fear of coming back is even harder. If we if we can get people back after the two weeks, you know, it doesn't end. Our support doesn't end there. Mm. You know, we then cut in with all kinds of other support. Um, but the, but the same applies for the, for the sort of conversations about mental health. And um, we're just producing a toolkit. We're, we're working with Mind um, and with a particular person who, who does a lot with organisations about breaking down stigma and that's really important you, you know I talked at the beginning about my role being a combination of strategic and operational mm. and you know never forget it in HR I don't happen ultimately I don't really know what's going to happen from one minute to the next because mm -hmm. 
somebody will turn up at our desks in tears and and at that point you go into operational mode um it's a reactive hr role but it's a valuable role and you know i have heard people with financial difficulties so severe that the fact they're in work and just in tears is miraculous mm. um and you know and i've been able to put them in touch with you know the national deadline and and our employee assistance program and all kinds of things but that's working in the northeast that has hit me more than when i've worked in the midlands interesting um i've really noticed a, a difference in the amount of people that that have suffered really extreme financial hardship but you know perhaps both um both people in the relationship um having been made redundant perhaps going having to be declared bankrupt having their house repossessed and we give those people a job it's a lifeline mm. um and what's important to me is that, that that support continues and and i've seen people come out of the other side of that but one of the things that i want to do when we ever get to a, a stage of integration when i get to a stage of calm um <laughs> in in a business is something that matters to me is to put in a financial education program um it's something i wish was taught in schools mm. it's it's not taught in schools unless it's taught in the family it doesn't tend to be taught in the workplace mm. and yet it, it just destroys people's lives and and i'm talking about things as basic as somebody understanding what a credit score is yeah and you know somebody not taking out a loan to pay a debt um and and we're looking at, at working with a company called neighbor who, who does very ethical loans um but i kind of want to put on the kind of you know like a lunch and learn session on you know did you know that if you missed one payment on a credit card or perhaps a utility bill it could impact your credit score for 6 years mm. i want to provide people with those skills because when we've got a great employee we don't want to lose them yeah and do you think do you think it's a responsibility of an employer to to support uh, the employees on a on a wide range of things because you know what i'm hearing is you know mental health physical health bereavement you know a whole range of things that you know 10 15 20 years ago were just not considered do you do you think that our lives and our work are now so much more integrated that there's actually a responsibility for employers to do this or is this just something that you think it is your passion i think it's a bit of both i think it it coincides because it's my passion. Um, but I, yeah, I think we have a moral and an ethical responsibility mm. to do that. Um, it, you know, I guess it's like the question, does education stop when you leave school? No, mm. I think it probably just begins. But, you know, I do a lot of work um, in the education sector. I'm, I'm an education enterprise advisor. So I'm working with schools so they have a sort of business link. And, and the link there is really important you know, if schools prepare people to go into work, but then you get into work, the learning shouldn't stop then. Um, and I just, don't get me wrong, you know, startup business, sometimes what I am trying to achieve um, involves some hard conversations um, because we have cash to bring in and we have customers to acquire and customers to retain and a reputation to build, etc., etc. And the financial targets are tough, and the pace that we're working at is very fast. But I do honestly believe 
we will achieve all of those things by treating our people in the right way. And and that right way is about all of the things that, that you mentioned there. It is mm-hmm. about it's about broader life skills, it's about acknowledging that people exist out of work and sometimes the boundary between home and work is you know, it, it's a fine line. Um, and so yeah, why why wouldn't we as a responsible employer try and deliver that all round kind of learning? Because I can tell you the people that will gain from it are it's the employer just as much as the employee. Yeah, of course, yeah. Well, you know, our fitness levels are, are running at about, sorry, let me do it the other way around. Our attendance levels, um, right from the start-up, and, and don't underestimate the stress of a mm. start-up, have run at no less than 97%, and, and we've reached 98%. Wow. And that says something about what we're doing. Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Jane, what would your top tip? I mean, obviously you're in you're in HR. What would your top tip be? Having gone through, you know, um, massive change in the last eighteen months, and in some ways having the ability to look at it whilst you're in it, but also look back on it and see how leaders have navigated the organisation. What have you either experienced, done, or seen that would be your top tip for a leader leading an organisation through uncertainty? I think it's a personal one. I, I think I would say to people, don't ever underestimate your own abilities. I was petrified at the thought of having to run payroll and pensions. So I'd worked in big corporate organisations where there was always a whole pensions team, a whole payroll team, and suddenly I had to run those things. And to start with, I just thought, well, I I am not going to be able to do that, and so maybe this isn't the job for me, or I'm not going to hit my budget because I'm going to need to bring somebody in. But you know what? When you can just talk to yourself the way that you would talk to other people, you give yourself a good talking to if you can just be kind of calm and don't put undue pressure on yourself, but don't close your mind off either. Mm. And and actually now, you know, the other day I went and gave a, a little pensions talk, not pensions advice, but just a little pensions talk to a, a group of employees that really didn't understand what pensions was. And, and I could do that because two years ago, I only understood that I paid into a pension and I understood what was going to come out of the other end. But it was always something that, that I'd left to other people. But you can do it. And people have astounded me. Now, that's my personal, that was my topic that was mm. clear. Mm. But, but I've watched employees at every level face up to those fears. And and they look back on it now. And, you know, the, the woman that I mentioned earlier on that, that was frightened of coming across to a new building, she's been the biggest proponent of change <laughs> that we've probably had. And yet, she almost hit her barrier with something that was just dear to her. And, and I would just say, you'd be amazed what you can do. Mm. And I guess you it's about helping. And, and is it about helping other people through that as well? So watching out for where people in your, in your organisation or in your team have hit that barrier for themselves and supporting them through it? Yeah, it is. And, and I think another tip for me and, and perhaps another learning for me is especially in HR, because 
you can tend to be seen as a support function. But for me, learning about the business is essential. Mm. When you learn what the business needs to achieve, you can see how whatever function you are in, you can see how you can help. Yeah. And then you also need to know your employees. You need to need you need to know the people that sit near you and spot the difference. You know, if there's a difference one day, and and as leaders, you do need to know your people, mm. and then you'll see those signs. And even if you haven't yet got the toolkit on how to help them in that situation, hopefully you'll know a different leader that that you could ask. You know, you don't you don't have to know all these things yourself. Some people would hate to be confronted with somebody in tears. For other people, that that doesn't unnerve them and they're very good in that situation. But accept what you're good at. Don't rule anything out that you might learn, but also accept things where, you know, other people can are better than, than you are. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a great way to, to close it because we've almost come full circle because you started at the beginning by saying, you know, sometimes it feels lonely at the top. And and what I'm also hearing is is your advice is don't allow it to be lonely at the top, but reach yeah. out and and know that you're part of a team and something bigger. Absolutely right. Mm. Great. Well, thank you, Jane. It's been amazing to talk to you. You've got so much knowledge on this area. It sounds like you could um, you should be writing the book on leading through uncertainty. But uh... <laughs> no, no, I leave that to you. <laughs> but great. Thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. Wow, we covered so much today. Jane has a wealth of information around HR, psychology and engaging people, as well as her own leadership capabilities. I was inspired by Jane's ability to balance her own enthusiasm for change with the understanding she has for the fact that change can be excruciating for other people and recognises how we need to be able to help people navigate it in different ways. And that's different for everyone. That understanding that she has means that Jane continually seeks ways of engaging people. She recognises that their emotions need to be included as part of the process. I'm definitely going to check out that book by Charles Duhigg as well. If you're interested, his name is spelt D-U-H-I-G-G and the book is called The Power of Habit. Lots of gems in there today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed interviewing Jane. That's it for this podcast. I was your host, Jude Jennison from Leaders by Nature. Keep leading and I'll come back soon with the next interview on Leading Through Uncertainty. Mm-hmm.